0: The Old Testament reading is from Ezekiel 2. This has to do uh, with the theme of the sermon, which is going to be from the gospel reading. Uh, God said to me, son of man, stand up on your feet and I will speak to you, Ezekiel says. And as he spoke, the spirit came into me and raised me to my feet. And I heard him speaking to me. And he said, son of man, I'm sending you to the Israelites to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay. I'm just, you're give me a second here to set up the second Corinthians reading because honestly, it's just a little bit weird. In second Corinthians, uh, Paul is ha- having disagreements with, uh, there's people in the church of Corinth who are accusing Paul of being a fake apostle. And they say he's a fake apostle because he doesn't do a lot of miracles and his preaching is kind of lousy and he's not very dynamic and he's, he's not even very attractive to listen to. And Paul, it, Paul is telling them in Corinth in Corinth, yeah, that, that's exactly right. That's how you know that I'm a legit apostle because I'm not very talented. I'm not a great speaker. I don't do a ton of miracles. I'm not very dynamic. That actually should be proof to you that I am an apostle because even though I'm lousy at everything I do, I preached the gospel to you and you came to faith. And now in 2 Corinthians 10, he's going to say, actually, I could boast if I wanted to because I'm better than all y'all when it comes to one specific thing. I know Jesus. I've, I've had face-to-face contact with the Almighty, but I'm not going to boast about that. Instead, of, I'm going to boast about how weak I am because... Through my weakness, you see the cross of Jesus Christ, not through the things that I'm good at. That's the setup here, okay? So what he's going to do is he's going to talk about an experience that he had, but he's going to talk about it in the third person. And he's going to be talking about it like, if I was this guy, I could be real proud, but I'm not going to, even though it actually was him. All right, here it goes. I must go on boasting, Paul says, although there's nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who fourteen years? He's talking about himself. Remember, I know a man in Christ who fourteen years ago was caught up to the third heaven. By, by third heavens, sorry again. In, in ancient cosmology, there's three heavens. There's the heaven where the birds are flying around the air, you know, where the oxygen's at. That's that's heaven. There's also heaven where the stars and the planets are, and then there's the heaven above that where divine beings live, or in Paul's case, where the Creator God lives. That's what he means by the third heaven. He's caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise. He heard inexpressible things, things that man is not permitted to tell. I'll boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I wouldn't be a fool because I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain So no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say. To keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations, there was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. So that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, the sixth chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus left there and went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that's been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village and calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. And these were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that people should repent. And they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. So let's read um, Mark chapter 6, 1 through 13 again through, and I'm going to talk about a little bit. And then at the end of uh, reading through I want to discuss uh, three things that this text tells us about the mission that God's called us to be on. Okay, so uh, Jesus left there and went to his hometown. His hometown um, is Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Uh, and many who heard him were amazed. Uh, where did this man get these things? Now, this is not... So they're amazed at his teaching. This ne- Verse 3 is... More sarcasm than anything else. Where did this man get these things? Like, what does this guy have? What's this guy's business getting up in front of us and being impressive? They've heard stories too, by the way. They've heard stories about the miracles that the guy does. All right. He's been doing, he's not going to do very very many miracles here, but he does miracles. He's been doing uh, his fair share of miracles throughout Galilee. What's this wisdom that's been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? This, by the way, is I, he's not you know he's he's a manual labor. He's not supposed to be the kind of guy that's dynamic and people follow him. He's uh, he's a carpenter. You should think, by the way, too, like not not like Yankee work, workshop carpenter. He's more like union carpenter. He's a construction worker. Is what is what the word means. It's less it's less uh, uh you know artistic and skilled and more. The guy builds things. He builds and maintains boats. He builds and maintains houses. This is what he does for a living. Isn't this Mary's son? That too, look, the, the way that you would normally say it is, isn't this the son of, and then you would say the guy's father's name. That's how the Jews would normally say it. By saying, isn't this Mary's son, it's alluding to the fact that his, uh, his birth was supposedly virginal, right? I mean, that's ridiculous, of course. And, and of course, nobody believes that he was born of a virgin, that his mom was a virgin. They all believe that she was messing around before she got married and got pregnant and then uh, made up this story. You, those of you who are believers, you believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Um, I don't know if you feel naive about that or, or, or somehow ridiculous. Uh, it, it, it's always been ridiculous though. Here's the thing is that this is kind of a little bit of an aside point. It's always been nonsense to believe that Jesus is born of a virgin. So these, it's, 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 it's easy to say, well, these people are just superstitious and backwards. You know, It's 2,000 years old. Of course, they believe ridiculous things, like a guy could be born, born of a woman who hasn't had sex. Um, that, that, of course, is just f- filled with modern hubris. We are, are we smarter than them? I, I guess in some sense we are, right? I mean, we have cell phones. Uh, we know how... We know how to make airplanes and microwave ovens and things like that. But they did know how to make babies. They did know how that worked. And they, it was just as scandalous to them as it is to you to say, this woman was a virgin and she had this baby. All right. This, this is a little bit of a backhanded, passive-aggressive shot that the people of Nazareth are firing across Jesus's bow. This is the bastard. What right does he have to come in here to the synagogue and act like he's something? All right. And then here's his family. They're all here. They're all normal people, right? This is you, this is not this is not the stock from which celebrities springs. Here's his brothers. Here's his sisters. They're all here. And they took offense at him. Last line of verse three. That doesn't mean that word offense there is a word that uh, means stumbling block. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're offended by him in the modern you know sense that he you know that somehow he triggered them and and they just can't deal with like his political incorrectness. What it means more likely is that they stumbled over the fact that who he said he was and who he looked like he was and who they thought he was because they knew his past history didn't match up, right? I mean, he claims to be, in some sense, he claims to be connected to God in such a way that his relationship with God is far more intimate and deeper than the normal human relationship with God can be. He claims, in some sense, to be in control of the universe. He cast out demons. He tells the weather what to do, those sorts of things. But he's just a construction worker. Like, I, I, can't get, I can't put those two things together. That's what people were saying. I can't, I can't track with this. They take offense. They stumble over the fact that he's a human being, that he just a, looks like a normal dude, even though he claims to be the creator God. And Jesus said to them, only in his hometown among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. So, They know Jesus too well. They know Jesus, in a sense, they know Jesus too well to believe in him. It's a weird thing, isn't it? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. He couldn't do any miracles there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith, they didn't believe in him, he had to step away. There wasn't a whole lot he could do. Okay, here's the second story. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village and calling the 12 to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. If any of these towns will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. That's, I mean, we're used to use. you know, I don't know if you've, Ever use the phrase, shake the dust off your feet. But it's, it's kind of like, it's, it's, it's a little bit emotional. Like, I don't, I don't care for you. Like, I'm turning my back on you. This is not actually what's going on here. It's a Jewish custom when you traveled in, uh, foreign countries. Oh, when you got to Israel, you would stop at the border and you would shake the dust of the foreign country off your feet. It's just a custom. And basically what it's saying is, is the land where I'm about to enter is holy. The land where I'm leaving is unholy. And I don't want to bring any part of that unholiness with me into here. This is my true home. I'm going to sit loose to the land where I just came from. It's not so much emotional, like I hate this land, I turn my back on it, as just saying, I'm, not gonna, I'm sitting loose to it. I'm, I'm going to be emotionally detached from where I'm coming from. What I care about is where I'm headed and not where I've come in from. Come from. More on that in a few minutes too. The disciples, verse 12, they went out and preached that people should repent and they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Okay, let's talk about Christian mission this morning. It is appropriate because we got Sue with us and she's a missionary, but it's—I we're all on mission, right? We've talked a lot about that here. It's not just people who raise support and go to foreign countries. Uh, You guys all know this. This is Christianity 101. We're all supposed to be on mission. So let's talk about the task of mission what mission is about, let's talk about the psychology of mission, uh, the way we should think about mission, and then let's talk about the results of mission. All right, And these three are a little bit separate from each other in certain ways. So let's kind of hack our way through this uh, one by one. First of all, the task of mission, verses 12 and 13. They went out and preached that people should repent, and they drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. So the task of mission is... And again, this is no new information for you guys. The task of mission is to preach repentance and forgiveness. This is what they do in verse 12. They go and they tell people that God is offering you, if you repent, if you turn your back on your current way of life and trust Jesus for his way of life, you'll be forgiven. If there's not a single sin that you can commit, if there's not a single way that you can be, if there's not a single thing about you which you know deep in your heart is is entirely and completely broken, in which when you're awake, you try to justify yourself. You try to make sense of it. You try to cope with the guilt somehow and say that this is okay. I can deal with it. I just have this irrational guilt. You try and cope with that, but in your weaker moments, when you're tired or when you're hungry or when you're sleepy at night and you know that this is wrong, it needs to be fixed. Don't lie to yourself. It can be fixed. God can forgive you for no matter what and repair you from no matter what. There's not a single square inch of your existence. There's not a single... Part of your emotional life, your psychological life, your physical life that God can't heal and repair. This is the first part of mission is telling people that God wants to heal everybody. That God wants to fix our, now part of this too is recognizing that we need to be fixed. Part of our current problem in our current generation is that we're not guilty of anything. And so we can't be forgiven of anything. And so we cut ourselves off from the gospel. The gospel is not you're okay and everybody else should just learn to deal with you. The gospel is that none of us are okay. We're all are completely and entirely broken, but God can fix it. If we'll admit that we're broken, then God can fix it. And part of our calling as Christians is to constantly be repenting ourselves, but to be sharing this repentance with other people as well. Be we trying to lovingly convince people that everything about you that deep down inside you know is broken can be forgiven and healed. The second part of it, though, is just as important, and that is mercy ministry. In verse 13, they drive out many demons and anoint many sick people with oil and healed them. Jesus does a ton of teaching in the gospel, but Jesus does a ton of caring about other people in the gospel as well. Jesus does a ton of healing the sick, feeding hungry people, bringing disenfranchised people back into community. This is an important part of Christian community that we somehow have let slip. And I don't want to get into it here because we got too much to do this morning but we need to talk about sometime sometime soon here in the future we need to talk about mercy ministries in St. James Lutheran Church. All right. What can we do as a congregation to spread healing, physical healing, psychological healing in this in this area? What can we do to spread enfranchisement? What can we do to help and help fight racism? What can we do to help fight poverty? These are not like secondary things. This is important to the heart of the gospel. And honestly, you guys know this is true. Nobody's going to listen to step number one if we're not doing step number two. If we're just doing hit and run missions, like walking up to strangers and saying, hey, repent of your sin and believe in Jesus, all they're going to hear is power play on our part, that we just want to control them. If we're not coupling it with actually works of love, the gospel is not going to be effective through us. So these two things, and I know this is not, this is not, again, this is not new. Preaching the gospel Mercy ministries, these are the two things that we as St. James need to be about. Okay, let's talk about the psychology of mission. Go down to verse, verse eight. This is the instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples when he sends them out on mission. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Okay, so what he's saying here is, this is urgent. Don't pack, don't prepare for this thing, just go out and do it. Now, is God asking you, like, to give up everything except for one pair of shoes and one jacket and don't take any food and go out. No, I mean, this is like, this is bound to this certain moment in Jesus's history, the specific things that he's telling them to do. Look, the kingdom's about to come. I'm about to go to the cross and suffer and die and rise from the dead to forgive everybody's sins and to start the healing of the whole universe. I need you right now to get out right now. Don't stop and start taking care of business. Let everybody know this is about to happen. Now, we're not in the same urgent sense where you need to like just take off out the door right now but we do need to have this sense of urgency that this is extremely important that this mission is the kind of thing that doesn't need to wait and in fact it shouldn't wait it should be number one priority in the life of us as a church and in us as individuals that the kingdom of God is about to come and people need to know about this right? so urgency is a big one it's like waiting around for it to happen There's a certain sense in which we want to wait on the Holy Spirit, but there's another certain sense in which we use this sort of waiting on the Holy Spirit as a justification for us not doing anything. It's nice and safe in here, in this, in this room here, right? We can say whatever we want. We can do whatever we want. It's a different thing being out there amongst other people that we don't know. We don't know how they're going to respond to this stuff. But there's a sense of urgency. You just got to get out and you just got to do it. And the second thing is this, is you have to sit loose to the results. This takes us back to that whole shaking the dust off your feet thing from verse 11. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. So one of the things that we do is we, like we want to judge the effectiveness of the mission on the results that we get. Like you and I, we want to know that if we start doing this, if we start telling people about the gospel, if we start doing works of of mercy, we want to know that people are going to like it and they're going to respond and they're going to come to faith in Jesus. But there's a good chance that they're not going to, right? And I'm not saying you have to shake your, shake the dust of your feet, feet off at them, but you have to sit emotionally loose to this sort of thing. The thing is that you have to do the mission and the results you can't worry about. That'll be the third point when we talk about the results, okay? We'll get there in a second. There's, are you guys aware of like, um, some psychologists use, they call it the big five personality identifiers. Um, to, to, when they talk about people's personality. And of course, anything in psychology, anytime people like talk about human beings and they try to do it in scientific terms, it's gonna get criticized. So I know that this isn't perfect, but a lot of psychologists use this. There's five categories that you can talk about. Openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Talk talking about agreeable, the fourth one, agreeableness, real quick. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell talks a lot about uh, agreeableness. If you're, if you're familiar with Malcolm Gladwell, he does uh, a lot of podcasts about this. He was doing a podcast recently about uh, Rick Barry. Do, do any of you guys remember Rick Barry? Played for the Golden State Warriors back in the 70s. When he retired in 1980-something-something, he was the he had the highest percentage free throws made in NBA history at that point. I think Larry Bird's passed him now. I can't remember who's passed him, but... Anyway, it was Rick Barry for a while. Rick Barry's a fantastic basketball player. He's, uh, uh, he's in the Hall of Fame. But the thing about Rick Barry and his free throws, some of you remember, is he shot him granny style. You remember uh, how when you were a little kid and you couldn't, you know, from a set position, you couldn't get the ball to the basket. And so you would have to like, you can't see this because of the pulpits there, of course. But you would have to like have the ball between your legs and spread your legs and throw it up like that. That's actually how he shot free throws in the NBA. Because he realized that, I shoot free throws better. And Malcolm Gladwell interviews Rick Barry, and Rick Barry says, "Oh yeah, everybody can shoot free throws better that way." It is like he said, it's 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 scientifically demonstrable that your that your touch will be softer if you shoot free throws granny style. In fact, he said, back in the six or back in the seventies, I I tried to convince Wilt Chamberlain. Wilt Chamberlain is famous for being like he's in the short list short list of greatest NBA players of all time. I realize that I'm losing a bunch of you just by talking about basketball, so I'm gonna try and make this short. He's in the short list of greatest NBA players of all time, but one of the worst free throw shooters of all time. And it was, you know, famously at the end of games, uh, teams would intentionally foul him so that he would have to shoot free throws because he just wasn't a good shooter. He convinced Wilt Chamberlain to shoot free throws granny style for a while. And Wilt Chamberlain's free throw percentage shot up, shot up, and then he stopped doing it. And Rick Berry said, what are you doing? You're actually playing better. Teams are more afraid to foul you near the end of the game. You're scoring more points in the game. And he said, I can't do it. I just can't do it. I'm a grown man. I cannot shoot granny-style free throws. And Malcolm Gladwell's point is this. On the agreeableness scale, Wilt Chamberlain is way over towards the agreeable side. Now, what what uh, What the agreeableness scale means is this. Do you care what other people think about you? Are you concerned with other people's feelings? Do you prefer to get along with other people? Are you a consensus builder? Will Chamberlain's way over here. People who are way over here tend to be nice people to be around, good people to work with. They tend to be more followers instead of leaders. People who are on this side of the agreeableness scale tend to be way better leaders. These are people who don't care what other people think about them. These are the kind of people who will shoot granny-style free throws as an NBA all-star because it works better, and I don't care what you think about me. I'm going to do it that way. And what what, what the point of this passage here, this section about shaking the dust off your feet is, is, is that now there's there's wisdom here, right? Is that you have to be far enough over on the agreeableness this scale that you actually give a dang about people's lives that you're actually willing to sacrifice your own feeling, to care for other people, to do mercy ministries, to tell people who might be angry with you, you know what, Jesus loves you and you might not like me saying this, but all the things about your life that are broken, he can fix. But you have to be far enough on the disagreeableness side to say how you respond to me is not going to affect what I do. Now, like I said, there's wisdom here. And you guys, I don't know where each one of you individually is at. I've told you, some, I told some of you, maybe I've said this in here, I don't know. But I know I've told some of you this is that I have a certain conversation with one of my children that always goes like this. Look, you can't care what people think about you. You have to do the right thing. You cannot always follow your friends. Sometimes you just have to say, it's going to be uncomfortable, but I'm going to do the right thing. I have a a different conversation with another one of my kids that frequently goes like this. I'm really proud of you for being so strong, and I know that you always want to do what's right, but you have to consider other people's feelings sometimes. And that's you have to know where that's at. But far too often, we're so far over on this agreeableness side that we're just not going to do anything, right? And what this does is it leads to frustration, like this sort of frustration, like we don't know what to do. We know that we're supposed to be Christians in the world. We know that we're supposed to be salt and light, but we're not sure how to do it in a non-scary way. That's the other thing it leads to is fear, right? Like if I say something, I'm going to be the weirdo. If I say something, I'm going to tick them off. If I say something, I'm going to be labeled as culturally insensitive. If I if I even imply at all that Jesus is the way of salvation and that you don't just get to do whatever you want and it's okay, I'm going to be labeled as culturally insensitive. There's a fear there, but you have to be disagreeable enough. You have to be Rick Barry enough to say, you know what? It doesn't matter to me. I care for everybody. I'm over here, but I've got to do what I've got to do because it's right. Third thing, the result of mission. And this is the thing. This is where we've kind of been leading up to. Results. You know, it's, the most intriguing thing about this text to me is that Jesus doesn't get results, but his disciples do. Like Jesus does, Jesus is doing ministry. He's doing mission, but people aren't believing in him. Is that not weird? I mean, don't you usually think of Jesus as like, if like Jesus tries to lead somebody to himself, they're coming. And here he's in Nazareth and he's amazed at their lack of faith. He's teaching, he's doing some miracles as much as he can, but they're not believing in him. But his disciples, who if you've ever read the gospel of Mark, are complete bozos. Like this is one of the themes of the gospel of Mark is that the disciples never, ever get it. You foolish people, how slow you are to faith, he says to them. At the very end, you know who gets it? Not one of his disciples. His disciples all run away at the end. It's the Roman soldier who gets it at the end. Who says truly this dude is the son of God. Throughout the book of Mark, Mark, his gospel, throughout the gospel of Mark, his disciples are not with it. But here they are, as ignorant as they are, as unskilled as they are in evangelism, they're getting all kinds of good results. Right? Because Jesus gives the results. Conversions don't happen because of technique. Conversions don't happen because you're dynamic. Conversions don't happen because you're cool. Conversions don't happen because you're culturally relevant. Conversions don't happen because you're just a whiz-bang at evangelism. Conversions happen because Jesus decides he's going to convert people. And this is what happens in verse um, 7. He sends them out two by two and gives them authority over evil spirits. Jesus says, I'm giving you the power to do this, and now go out and do that. And so what do we do? If it's about Jesus and what Jesus does, that means that there's actually nothing that we can do. Now, we need to be on mission because Jesus calls us to be on mission but we can't do it without Jesus doing it through us. And so we make much of Jesus. We talk a lot about Jesus. We sing a lot about Jesus. You're going to go home and you're going to think a lot about Jesus. You're going to read a lot about Jesus. You're going to fill yourself up on Jesus. You're going to soak yourself in Jesus because Jesus is the one who does mission. Amen.